Uh, If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. First book of the Bible, first chapter in the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. Bereshit, bara, Elohim, et hashemaim, ve'et ha'aretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These words, ten words in English, seven words in Hebrew, are more than an introduction to the first book of the Bible. These words introduce the entire history of the universe and lay the foundation for how we are to see and understand and inhabit the world in which we live. Uh, The two verses that we will be looking at for our time together this morning are absolutely essential to understanding what the world is, who we are in the world, and who God is in relationship to us and his creation. Genesis is a book of beginnings. It was the custom in ancient times to name a book by its opening word, which is precisely what happened with the book of Genesis. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, around 250 BC, the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew word Bereshit was the word Genesis, which means origin or beginning. Uh, Genesis can also be found in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we read, The book of the genealogy, the Genesaos of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in John chapter 1, verse 1, the Apostle John writes, In the beginning, where his readers would have gone to, In the beginning, God, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Both Matthew and John deliberately begin their gospel accounts with the beginning, the genesis of Jesus Christ. But here at the very first word of the Bible, we are introduced to the beginning of everything. Genesis is the perfect title for this book because it gives us the beginning of the the doctrine of God and the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of man. The doctrine of sin and the doctrine of salvation. It provides the theological pillars, as it were, upon which the rest of the book, the rest of the Bible, stands. At the same time, though, this is no dry textbook. Its narratives of the garden, the flood, and the Tower of Babel have captivated hearts for thousands of years. The lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Joseph in Egypt make for great preaching material. And so for the next while, we'll be making our way through this book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bibles opened, uh, let me read for us Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. And I'll read it in English. 
Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Here's what I want to do for our, our time together this morning. Um, it's, it's going to be a little, little bit different because it's the beginning of a new sermon series. It's the beginning of a new book. Uh, but I want, what I want to do is I want us uh, to look at the structure of Genesis. So how Genesis is laid out. Uh, and then I want us to look at the themes of Genesis, what we can look for throughout the book. And then I want to come back to verses 1 and two, and see what they reveal to us about God. And so that's going to be our, our uh, roadmap for our time together this morning. Uh, the first thing I want us to see is the structure of Genesis. The structure of Genesis. How is Genesis laid out? Well, Genesis can, can easily be separated into two main parts, where Genesis uh, chapters 1 to 11... Uh, basically cover primeval history, so the early history of planet Earth. And then chapters 12 to 50, so the rest of the book of of Genesis, cover patriarchal history, or the history of of Israel's founding fathers. That's about the easiest um, structure of Genesis. Uh, But the most intentional structure in the book of Genesis is that it is divided into ten Toledoth, Sections. Uh, Toledoth is a Hebrew word which literally means generation. And this word, Toledoth, occurs ten times throughout the book of Genesis. Now, you don't necessarily need to, to turn your Bibles to all of these. I'll go through them, and you can simply write, write them down, and you can check them out later. Now, the first one we see is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, which says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. In other words, these are the generations or the Toledos of the heavens and the earth. And so Genesis 1 verse 1 to Genesis 2 verse 3 serves as a kind of prologue. And then we are introduced to the, the first generation, which is creation itself. And then then the second one is in uh, Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Then Genesis 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Then Genesis 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. Then Genesis 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. Then Genesis 11, verse 27. These are the generations of Terah. Then Genesis 25, verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael. Then Genesis 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac. Then Genesis 36, verse 1, uh, which is repeated later in verse 9 of that same chapter. These are the generations of Esau. And then finally, Genesis 37, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. <clears throat> and so we see 
10 generations. Now, Genesis obviously covers more than just 10 generations, but, but these 10 are marked out in, in deliberate sections. Five of them are followed by a narrative. Uh, so the, the, the first one with creation, the third one with the flood, the sixth uh, with Terah, which is largely about Abraham, uh, the eighth with Isaac, and then the tenth with, with Jacob. So five of them are, are followed by a narrative, and then five of them are followed by a genealogy. And so what these generations and, or, or Toledos are doing is they're telling us a story. They're telling us a story. If you were telling God what you would like to see in the first book of the Bible, my guess is that you would probably want a little more clarification on the first three chapters of Genesis. And yet there's only one chapter on the fall, while the third of Genesis is about the life of Joseph. Uh, There are more verses given to the story about Dinah and the Shechemites than to the creation of Adam and Eve. The story of Judah and Tamar is as long as the creation accounts. Now, why has God ordered it this way? Well, because Genesis is telling a story. And it's a story about where God's people began, where they came from. See, we have to realize that Genesis is the first book of a five-part series that was meant to go together. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, Exodus begins where Genesis left off because it's a story. Genesis is a, a snapshot of where we came from. And I say that intentionally. If, if you are a follower of Jesus, then this story is your story. Uh, whenever I explain uh, the gospel to someone, I, I typically use uh, four words. Four words to explain the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration. All right, so you got creation. God created all things good. And created mankind in his image to reflect his glory in creation, uh, fall. All of creation is broken and the image of God in mankind is being distorted because of mankind's rebellion against God. Now, redemption, God promised that a rescuer would come to, to live the perfect life that we couldn't live, die the death we deserve to die and rise from the dead overcoming sin and death, which we see fulfilled in in the person of Jesus Christ. And then finally, restoration. There is coming a day when Jesus will return to fully and finally restore all things, when when sin and death and destruction will be removed, and when we will be in the presence of God forever. This is our story. And we find the beginning of this story in Genesis. Right, so we see, we see creation in the first two chapters. Uh, then we see uh, the fall in Genesis 4 to uh, 11. I mean, we see the effects of, of the fall all throughout uh, Scripture. But, uh, but we see how sin spreads across the, the earth in the course of a few chapters. And then the final two chapters of the Bible in Revelation uh, chapter 21, chapters 21 and 22, we see the, the restoration of all things. So, so what does that leave us with? Well, that leaves us with redemption. 
which comprises everything in between. Right, so almost all of the Bible is about redemption. Now, do you know what that reveals to us about God and about mankind and about sin and about salvation? Well, it reveals to us that God is relentlessly pursuing those he created in his image, but who rebelled against him. And that there is nothing that will stop him from carrying out his rescue plan. That's, that's the storyline of Genesis. That's the storyline of the Bible. It's a story about God's plan to rescue, redeem, and restore fallen humanity. Have you ever watched a movie after missing the first few minutes of it. Right, there, there have been times when Helena has been watching a, uh, a Hallmark Christmas movie, and I'll come in and I'll start watching partway through, and I will have no idea what's going on. I mean, I can kind of guess, but I don't know who the main characters are. I don't know what their backstory is. And so Helena has to pause the movie and, and catch me up on how we got to that point. It's either that or I keep asking questions as we watch. But if you miss the, the first few minutes of a movie, then you will naturally have no idea what's going on. And the same is true for understanding this story. If we, if we don't read Genesis, if we don't read the first verse of the Bible, then we will naturally find ourselves wondering what happened that things are the way they are. If we don't look at creation, then we won't understand how devastating the fall is and how complete the redemption is and how glorious the restoration will be. And so that's the structure of Genesis. It's a, it's a story in which each one of us find ourselves and it's a story that we need to know if we are going to live life in a broken and fallen world. So that's the first thing we see. The second thing that I want us to look at are the, the themes of Genesis. So what, what is the book of Genesis about? Well, Genesis is the third most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament, behind the Psalms and, and behind Isaiah. Now, one commentator writes that Genesis is in various ways almost nearer the New Testament than the Old. And some of its topics are barely heard, again, until their implications can fully emerge in the gospel. The institution of marriage, the fall of man, the jealousy of Cain, the judgment of the flood, the, the imputed righteousness of the believer, the rival sons of promise and of the flesh, the profanity of Esau, the pilgrim status of God's people are all predominantly New Testament themes. Therefore, our understanding of the themes of Genesis helps us to understand the rest of Scripture. And, and one of the themes to look for in the book of Genesis is the theme of seed. The theme of seed. In Genesis 3, verse 15, very important verse in, in Genesis, God says that there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. 
And from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 20, we see the battle between these two rival kingdoms. But in Genesis 3 verse 15, we also see the first announcement of the gospel. That there will come one from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And, and throughout Genesis, every woman is holding on to that promise. Every woman is holding on to that promise. As, as Eve gives birth to the first ever son, and as Sarah gives birth to a son in her old age, and as Rachel and Leah and their female servants give birth to 12 sons, each one is wondering and hoping, will the promised child, the seed who will crush the head of the serpent, come from me? Will the promised child, will this seed come from me? And so that's one theme to look for in Genesis. Another theme uh, to look for in Genesis is the theme of land. A theme of land. Uh, the book of Genesis opens with the ideal land. We're going to look at that in chapter 2 with the description of paradise. And, uh, and the rest of the book is all these twists and turns finding their way into the promised land. Uh, in Genesis chapter 3, we read about how the first man and first woman are expelled from the land. In the days of Noah, the land is going to be wiped clean because of their sin. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is going to be called out of Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan, which is primarily where the action takes place from Genesis chapter 12 to 36. And then Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt, which is primarily where the action takes place from Genesis 37 to 50. And so we've got a number of different place names and a lot of references to, to land. The, the theme of land is important for us because it teaches us not just Israel's history, but, but world history. Yes, Genesis was written to Israel to tell them where they came from, but God is not a localized deity. He is the God of all things, who made all things, and who is bringing his people to a new land, according to Revelation 22. Um, so we... we we see themes of, of seed and land. And, and then grace. Grace is, is another theme in Genesis. Uh, Adam and Eve are, are punished, but God graciously withholds the death penalty. Cain is banished from his family, but God graces him with a mark of protection. The flood comes, but God graciously preserves the human race through Noah. Abraham receives the gracious promise that through him, all the people of the world will be blessed. Despite, despite the, the patriarch's repeated sins, God's promise still stands. And that's amazing if you think about it. I mean, Abraham and Isaac both lie about their wives. Sarah laughs at God's promise. Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt. Jacob is a manipulator and Rachel helps him. Laban is a cheat. Joseph is boastful. Joseph's brothers are jealous and sell him into slavery. Uh, Simeon and Levi slaughter the Shechemites. Reuben sleeps with his father's concubine. Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law. That's, that's the good side of the family, right? Genesis is not a book 
of heroes and heroines showing us what it is to live for God. No, Genesis is about grace. The Apostle Paul's words in Romans 5 verse 20 sum up the book of Genesis. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And this is good news for us. There was grace in the beginning, and it will always be grace. And so we, we've, we've looked at the structure, we've looked at the themes of Genesis. I want us to go back to verses 1 and 2. I want us to see two things about God in these opening verses. Two things about God. The first thing I want us to see is that God is the creator. God is the creator. Now, now that point might not jump off the page at us, but, but I don't believe we can overstate this. The Hebrew word bara means to create. And it's a word that is only ever used of God. That should tell us something. God is the only one who creates. Scripture is clear that God is the creator of everyone and everything. For example, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6 says, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. In Acts chapter 14, verse 15, in an attempt to get the people of Lystra to stop worshiping him, Paul says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the earth, who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. over and over again the distinction between the living God and the false so-called gods is that God made everything the author of Genesis is making clear in verse 1 in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I believe scripture affirms that Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible. Throughout the Old and New Testament, uh, we, we see the, the Pentateuch, Genesis through to, to Deuteronomy, referred to as the law of Moses. Uh, in John chapter 5, verses 45 to 47, Jesus himself confirms Mosaic authorship saying, do not think that I will accuse you to the father, but there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, there's good reason to suggest that Moses wrote Genesis after the exodus from the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness. As God's people dreamed of the promised land, they would naturally ask, 
about Abraham and the patriarchs who brought them down to Egypt. They would naturally want to know their beginning. So God met with Moses and gave them their Genesis story. Now, if you look at verse 1, you will notice that there is nothing in the first sentence of the Bible about a struggle among various gods and goddesses that leads to the, the creation of the world. And that's, that's the kind of oppressive polytheism that the, the people of Israel had just escaped from in Egypt. In opposition to a single creator, the Egyptians believed in a different story with many gods. But in the opening lines of Genesis, we get a true understanding about God and about the universe and about humanity. It's a, it's a sweeping affirmation of, of monotheism, mono, one, theism, God, over polytheism, poly, many, theism, God, many gods. Moses is so deliberate with his words that he doesn't even mention the pagan worldviews. But instead, he uses subtle imagery to oppose them. For example, uh, Moses uses the words greater light and, and lesser light to describe the sun and the moon because Egypt had solar and lunar gods. Moses wants to, to make clear from the beginning that all of Genesis and really all of Scripture is about the one true God. That's why Moses uses the, the name for God, Elohim, 32 times in the first chapter of Genesis. But what's interesting is that this, this name, this title for God, Elohim, is in the plural form. For all of you English teachers out here, you know that implies there are multiple gods. Now, on the one hand, the Bible is clear that God is one. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But on the other hand, the Bible is ex equally explicit that God is three persons. Matthew 28, verse 19, says that we are to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see that these three persons were active in creation. In Genesis 1, verse 1, we see God the Father. In Genesis 1, verse 2, we see God the Holy Spirit. And then in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, we see God the Son, who is the Word of God, became flesh, John 1, verse 14 says. And then in, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 to 16, it says that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so God creates by means of the Spirit and the Word. In the opening verses of the Bible, then, what we see are not three gods, 
like what we might read about in, in ancient Near Eastern literature. But rather what we see is one God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Now, ultimately, there, there are really only two responses for why something exists. Right? Either the universe is the result of, of some free personal agent, or the universe somehow created itself. And right at the beginning, the Bible tells us that the universe did not create itself, but rather it is the design of a free personal agent, namely God. But it's more than that, isn't it? The Bible tells us that, that it is the agency of one God, which was a direct attack on the, the polytheism in Moses' day. Again, we need to remember that Genesis was not written in the 1800s to counteract Darwin's theory of evolution. Genesis was not written to counteract irreligious worldviews. No, in Moses' day, everyone was religious. Everyone believed in some sort of God. What we're seeing in Genesis is a distinction between Israel's God and the pagan gods and goddesses. In the first words of the Bible, we see that, that one God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator. And then the second thing we see is that God is self-existent. God is self-existent. You could say that, that before we are introduced to God as the creator, we are introduced to God in his aseity. Aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. is a Latin term that means God is of himself. In other words, God depends on nothing and no one for his existence. He is eternal. He's before all things and in him all things hold together, Colossians 1 verse 17 says. God doesn't create because he's lonely. God doesn't create because he's bored. God doesn't create because he's somehow lacking something. No, God is self-existent. God doesn't enter the story in verse 1. The story enters into the life of God in verse 1. Moses isn't simply saying, in the beginning, there was God. He's saying, even before there was a beginning, there was God. Genesis is about the beginning of everything except God. He never had a beginning. He has always been, always is, and always will be. That's what Moses was getting at when he penned Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Everything and everyone has a beginning except for God. There never was a time when God was not there is nothing and, and no one who compares with him. This is made explicitly clear by the fact that God created everything ex nihilo, out of nothing. Romans 4 verse 17 says, As it is written, 
I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Hebrews 11 verse 3 makes it even clearer. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Stephen Hawking, who's being called one of the, the most brilliant theoretical physicists, writes, we now know that our galaxy is only one of some hundred thousand million that can be seen using modern telescopes. Each galaxy itself containing some hundred thousand million stars. Not only that, God created every speck of dust in the one hundred thousand million galaxies in the universe. Isaiah 40 references the, the, the greatness of God in creation, culminating in verses 25 to 26. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. <coughs> Excuse me. Can you imagine how important these words would have been for the people of Israel coming out of polytheistic Egypt? Here was the God who has always existed, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who created everything out of nothing, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God who delivered them through the Red Sea and set them free from Pharaoh. Significance. And this is our God. Because this is our story. And that is why these words are as necessary for us today as they were for the people of Israel. Right? We have a God who is the creator of all things and who depends on no one and nothing for anything. And yet we often believe that God is basically just like us, only with a bigger bank account so that he can give us what we want. And in this way, we create a God of our own making, a God of our own imagination who is clearly unworthy of our worship. Why would we worship a God so small? But in the opening verses of Genesis, we see a God who alone is worthy of our worship. A God to whom we owe everything. A God who has every right to command our allegiance and obedience a God to whom we all must give an account. God is not like us. God is greater and higher than we can imagine. But God is also nearer than we can imagine. He's also nearer than we can imagine. In Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul says to the, the men of Athens, 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, Paul says, he is actually not far from each one of us. Even though God is is so great, so high, so glorious, and so unlike us, He's actually not far from each one of us. And again, we see this in Genesis. Look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There's an interesting phrase here in verse 2. Tohu vabohu. Without form and void. Now what does that mean? Now God made the heavens and the earth, but, but the earth, Ha'eretz, was without form and void. Tohu vabohu. What does that mean? Did, did God make a lump of Play-Doh and now he's going to make something out of it in six days? I don't think that's quite what Moses has in mind here. Rather, it's suggesting that the earth at this point was was uninhabitable and uninhabited. The the very opposite of what we're going to see after the six days of creation. It's not yet what God intends it to be. Right now, it's covered with darkness. Because God has not yet said, let there be light. But God is there. But God is there. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Uh, We see a similar passage to this in in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 11 and 12, where, where the Lord is likened to an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The imagery here is that, that of the Holy Spirit hovering over the darkness and the chaotic waters, brooding over the, the nest of God's creation, as it were, preparing for, for day one when God will speak light into existence and will shine in the darkness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, the Apostle Paul applies this truth to our dark hearts. He writes, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
One commentator writes, just as the spirit of God fluttered over the dark waters, so he does over the dark hearts of humanity, preparing them for the word of God that will make them into new creations in Christ. And so what we see in these first two verses is that there is a God. That he made the world and everything in it. That he exists in and of himself. Dependent upon nothing and no one for his existence. And that he is greater and yet nearer than we can imagine. Now the world may seem dark. With wars and pandemics and the like. But God is actually not far from each one of us. Just as he created the heavens and the earth, so also he can make you new as well. As we study the book of Genesis, may we be reminded again and again that this is the God we serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we embark on this exciting journey through the book of Genesis. Help us to learn things we didn't know before. Whether we're coming to this book for the 50th time or for the very first time, show us again who you are. Give us eyes to see again the wonder and the beauty and the goodness of your creation. To see the horror of our sin and rebellion and the hope we have of our promise, of your promise and providence. We look to you, our creator and sustainer. In Jesus' name, amen.